We've been spending um, a fair amount of time um, studying through the Gospel of Luke, and part of what Luke is doing is he's communicating uh, to his readers, he is communicating to us, he is building this case for who Jesus is. He's trying to answer that question, who is Jesus? Who are we really dealing with when we're dealing with the Messiah? And not only that, but what does it mean if, if then Jesus is who he says he is, who, who Luke portrays him to be in this book, well, what does it mean for us then to follow him? What does that look like? What does that gospel-shaped, gospel-transformed life look like? And here in this passage, we get one more glimpse of what that looks like. Let me start reading for us in verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so Jesus went in and reclined at table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside as well, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Verse 42, <clears throat> but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe your mint and your rue and every herb in your garden, and yet you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, and you love the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. God, again, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it is right. Uh, we thank you that it is alive and that you've spoken to us. So, God, we pray that we would have ears to hear this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is um, similar to the passage that we read last week. And this is a story, and this is a passage about hypocrisy. Last week we read the story of Jesus exercising this demon from a man who was mute and blind and deaf. He, he exercised this demon, he healed this man, and then he turns his attention to the Pharisees and he, he begins to explain the dangers of, and the language we used last week, of a moral tidying up. Some of us just settle for that. We settle for a moral tidying up instead of a true spiritual washing and Jesus said to the Pharisee, and Jesus says to us in his word, that, that it does no good to merely sweep the floors of your heart. It, it does no good to just straighten the pillows of your heart. You need true spiritual washing. Washing by the blood of the Lord. This, this dilapidated house needs to come down. It needs to be rebuilt back up from the ground up by grace. And not only is there no, and this is terrifying, not only is there no lasting value in just a moral sweeping of the house while neglecting the true spiritual washing and renewal, but a moral sweeping of the house actually opens us up to more dangerous things. It opens us up to more internal evil. It opens us up to more internal corruption. It has this, this terrible power of making us believe that we don't need Jesus at all. Because look at how well behaved we are. What a dangerous thing. 
Jesus condemns this idea. He corrects the Pharisees' misunderstanding. And he makes clear that, that transformation happens, and hear this church, transformation happens from the inside out. Real, true, lasting gospel transformation happens from the inside out. The gospel renews our hearts before it renews our habits. It transforms our behaviors after it transforms our hearts. Not the other way around. One writer says this, that traditional religion, and this is what maybe many of us uh, grew up with or how we think about God, that, <clears throat> that if we do good deeds and we follow all the rules, if we are moral people, if our external behavior is okay, then God will come into our hearts and he'll save us. He'll bless us. In other words, if I, if I obey, then God will love me. Finally, then, God will accept me. Finally, then, God will be with me and, and give me grace. But the gospel, you see, and we've talked about this before, it reverses that idea. It doesn't say just tidy up the house, then God will love you. The gospel is that you never could have done the cleaning necessary without the grace of God. The gospel says that, that because God loves you, because God has transformed your heart, because God knows how corrupt we are and yet still saves us, in knowing that and actually experiencing and internalizing that, that's what actually empowers our transformed behavior. Religion is outside in, but the gospel is inside out. The writer goes on to say, we are justified by grace alone, not by works. We are beautiful and we are righteous in God's sight by the works of Christ. Once again, we, once we gain this understanding on the inside, it revolutionizes how we relate to God and it revolutionizes how we relate to others and even how we relate to ourselves on the outside. And so what the gospel does, the gospel not only reveals our hypocrisy, it's the only thing that can actually destroy it. In this story, you see Jesus is invited to dine with this Pharisee. Jesus comes into the house. He's invited to dine. He sits down at the table. And immediately the Pharisee is, and they use the words of the scriptures, he's astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands before sitting down to eat. Now, washing, you may know, was not a, a washing at the meal was not necessarily, it wasn't a biblical requirement, but it was a very important uh, part of first century Jewish tradition. The ritual washing that they would do before they ate and, and at other times as well was not only a, uh, it was not only a practical matter of hygiene, right? It was that, but it was more than that. It was this symbolic reflection of our need for, for spiritual transformation, for spiritual washing, and this was serious business to the Pharisees. This was very serious business to the Pharisees because they prided themselves on being more faithful to the word, being more obedient, being closer to God. They didn't have rules. They didn't just have the law that God gave. They had rules around that law and rules around those rules just to be safe. And so this washing, though not in the Bible, though not commanded in Scripture, was a serious part of how they viewed themselves to be better than everybody else to be cleaner than everybody else. The very word Pharisee means set apart. And they are the set apart ones. 
And even in this ritual act of, of washing, it was a, a declaration that, see, everybody else, they can understand now, we are cleaner than all the Gentiles who are defiled, than all the other sinners who are defiled. We have been cleansed from the defilement of sin. We've washed. Now, the washing, of course, wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but even this washing, the Pharisees had distorted and corrupted as an area of pride. And so this is where Jesus chooses to make his point. He says, you Pharisees, you, you clean the outside of the cup. You clean the outside of the dish. But inside, you're full of greed. You're full of wickedness. You're a hypocrite. You fools, Jesus said. Did not he who made the outside make the inside as well? See, Jesus, uh, he's changing the metaphor that he used in the, in the passage before this. He, he's changing his metaphor from a house, like we discussed last week, to a cup, to a dish. He says the outside looks clean. It looks clean, but inside it's filthy. Like, like a tidy but dilapidated house. There may be the appearance of cleanliness, right? There's this facade of morality. You look good. There's a, there's a mask of godliness. But inside, greed, wickedness, and hypocrisy. This is actually where we get the word hypocrisy. In, in Greek, the word hypocrisy means, means an actor, a stage player. It means someone who puts on a mask. Someone who plays a part. One writer says this. I think I might have this on the screen. Michael Wilcock. He says, hypocrites are acting a part. Their religious life is simply a role they play. It bears no relation to the kind of person that they really are when they're off stage. Their religion is no more than an outward show. And so Jesus condemns them. And he, in, in condemning them, he delivers to them a series of woes. And he'll say in verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe your mint and your rue and every herb, and yet you neglect justice and the love of God, and yet these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees. You, you love the best seats in the house. You love the best seats in the synagogue. You love being in the marketplace and getting all the greetings. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing. Here Jesus is giving us a glimpse about the, about the inner workings of hypocrisy. This is not a fun sermon to prepare all week, I'll tell you that. And it's not even that much fun to deliver on Sunday. You guys hear this for about 30 minutes once a week, and I'm getting bombarded with this stuff every day. In verse 42, we see what Jesus is doing here. Very artfully, he begins to expose their hypocrisy. And he does it in terms, he, what he highlights, interestingly enough, is he, he highlights their giving. He says, you, you tithe, you give, you give a tenth meticulously of everything, even the smallest herbs in your garden, but you're so stingy with justice. You're, you're so stingy with God's love. What kind of person are you? And he answers that, you're a fool. You're a fool. You're a hypocrite. So the outside of your cup looks clean. 
but the inside is filthy. Pharisees, you see, as a group, and Jesus is always, uh, in the Gospels, as we read Jesus encountering the Pharisees, he's, he's always sort of just running in and disrupting their view of the law and of God and of their own morality. They all think they're safe. They all think they're free from any kind of defilement. They all think they're cleaner than everybody else. And Jesus always inserts this, inserts himself into their story, and he takes the law and he brings it right to bear on their hearts. And that's what he's doing in this story. And, and Pharisees, as a, as a group, were, were specialists. They were the best at their external religion. The Pharisees were the best at behavior, and yet they were completely devoid of any, in kind, any kind of internal transformation. And so Jesus, as he's encountering this Pharisee, he, he's making clear what you do on the outside should flow from who you are on the inside. What you do on that, your behavior should reflect your heart. The gospel works its way from the inside out. He says, you open your hands to give, but you haven't opened your heart to love or to serve. You, you, you've opened your hands to give, but you haven't opened your home. You've opened your hands to give, but you haven't, you haven't opened your eyes to the injustice of the world. You, you think you give to God, although everything you have belongs to him anyway. But you don't love him as you should. In fact, you don't love anyone as you should. You're stingy with God's love. You're stingy with justice towards others. You give on the outside... But do you give on the inside? Woe, woe to you. Woe to you, Pharisees. You love the best seats in the house. You love the greetings in the marketplace. You see, their, their hypocrisy is exposed um, in the contrast between their outward stinginess and their, their, their outward giving and their internal stinginess. And Jesus tells them why. He says, here's, here's why you're a hypocrite. You, you want to be seen as good. Here's why you do what you do. Here's why you're well behaved. You want the best seats in the house. You want, you want the praise in the neighborhood. You want the backslapping, right? You, you love the good seats. You love being prominent. You relish in being made to feel important. You want the honor. You want the attaboys. But that's not worshiping God. That's worshiping image an appearance. And he says, woe to you, Pharisees. And not only is their behavior dishonest, Jesus says it's actually dangerous. There's, there's ripple effects of their hypocrisy. He says, you, you, you worry about being outwardly contaminated yourself, and yet it is you who contaminate others. Woe to you, Pharisee, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without even knowing it. According to the Old Testament law, if someone came into contact with a grave or a burial place, even unknowingly, they would be defiled, they would be contaminated. And so they would literally, they would, they would be meticulous about marking gravestones. They would paint them, they would mark them in some way so that, so that you could be sure to walk around them because if you didn't, you would defile yourself. 
He's saying, this is, what, this is what you are, Pharisee. This is what your hypocrisy does. It's not only, it's not only dishonest, it's dangerous. But this is a, consider, church, consider the ripple effects of your hypocrisy. That's not a fun thought exercise. Consider the ripple effects of your hypocrisy. Thinking about the effect that it has on your children or on your spouse or on your neighbors or your coworkers or your employees or your family members, your roommates. Consider the ripple effects. Consider how dangerous your hypocrisy is. Jesus is asking, as it were, has the gospel taken root in your heart? Is it making its way from the inside out? Is it making its way from your heart to your habits? Is it cha- has it transformed you on the inside and then transforming you on the outside? John Lennon said, one thing we can't hide is when we're crippled inside. We can't hide our hypocrisy for long, right? Especially not from those who are closest to us. One writer commenting on this passage, he says, without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we just continue to manage internal and external darkness. It's just management. It's sin management. It's mess management without the gospel. But the gospel gives a deep clean. The gospel washes us. The gospel cleans the inside and outside. Now, I'm aware as I'm preaching this that for some... For some of you here, um, this is preaching to the choir. Yes, preacher, thank you, right? I agree that it's not, it's not just about what we do, it's primarily about who we are on the inside, right? It's, it's, about, it's about us loving God, it's not about us adhering to some moral code in an ancient book. It's about who we are in here, that's, that's, that's what really matters, not about who we are out there. But Jesus demands the inside and the outside. The inside of the cup and the outside of the cup must be transformed. He says in verse 40, You fools, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Or to put it another way, did not he who made the inside make the outside also? Jesus demands it all. It's important not to miss Jesus' point here. Jesus Jesus condemns the Pharisees, not for their outward generosity, not for their tithing, but for neglecting this deeper generosity of justice and God's love. That's why he's condemning them. And yet he makes a point, he makes a point here to say, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You need to be generous all the way around, with your heart and with your money. It's interesting that almost every encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees, he is critiquing their legalism. He is critiquing their their wooden uh, adherence and interpretation of the Old Testament law. This was the perfect opportunity, you see. This was the perfect opportunity for, for Jesus to critique their view of the tithe. And he doesn't do it. He says you need to do that. And you need to do this. You need to be generous here, and you need to be generous there. He commands it. 
Jesus connects. You see what he's doing here? He's connecting justice in the world, the love of God, with our money. With our money. One writer said, both justice and tithing have to do with our money. This is utterly crucial to see. Virtually every justice issue is a money issue. Virtually every justice issue is a money issue. That If you want to fight the injustice of killing unborn children, it's going to cost you money. Just like it will cost abortion providers when they lose millions of dollars offering their service. If you want to fight for the justice around the world to give people with less advantages than we have better opportunities for food or for homes or for health care or for education or for freedom, it's going to cost money. It's going to cost money. It's going to cost a lot. It's going to cost a lot. Justice issues are money issues. He continues, he says, so Jesus is not saying big issues like justice are important, but little issues like money, they're less important. He's saying justice is a money issue. He's saying you, you get your heart right, get your heart right about loving God, get your heart right about, about caring for other people, and then the details of how you handle your money, including your tithe, will be praiseworthy and not just religious camouflage or selfishness. Now, I, I know, <laughs> I've been in the ministry long enough, grew up in the church, I know that for, for many people in this room, talking about money in church is, um, at best, bad taste. That's all right. Yet Jesus himself Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked more about money than any other topic in all of Scripture except for the kingdom of God itself, which he regularly related to money. Over, over a third of the parables are about money. One in, and we're reading through the Gospel of Luke. One in every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke are about Money. This would be the equivalent, church, of, of me preaching um, two to four months out of the year every single year on money. That's a lot, right? Hear this, church. God cares deeply about how you spend his money. He cares deeply about how you spend his money, about how you use his money. Kent Hughes one writer, pastor, teacher, he says, our degree of attachment to our money and our possessions is an unfailing indicator of the health of our souls. Money, I think, is, is one, of the, one of the last gods that we, have to, um, that we have to walk away from before we can fully worship the Lord. It's so powerful in our lives, and it's an important thing. That's why Jesus spends so much time on it. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about money um, last year, when we went through our series on the seven deadly sins and we talked about greed, so I won't belabor the point, although it is critical. But I want to ask you, church, how much of God's money do you decide to keep every month? Do you give more now, Christians? Do you give more now than when you first became a follower of Christ? 
Have you seen any growth in that area? Have you seen any maturing in that area? If you give nothing now, and that's worldwide, most of the church, would you consider taking a step of faith to give 1%? to give 5%, to give 10%. They talk in the Old Testament about the tithe, which is literally 10%, but really the, the, the amount of resources, financial resources that God demands of the people in the Old Testament is really closer to about 20, 25%, maybe even more, depending how you interpret it. The tithe is an ongoing confession that God owns everything and that you're not a slave to the gods of greed or materialism or prestige. It's a confession that you're free. It's a confession that you're free to trust God. That you're free to trust God with all his money. That you trust him for your security. It's interesting that over and over and over again in scripture, in fact, every instance that I found, every instance that I found that addressed this topic of testing the Lord is decidedly against it. You shall not test the Lord. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Everyone always was condemned for putting the Lord to the test. Do not test me, God says, over and over and over again about everything except money. Except giving. He says, test me there. He says this in Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need, put me to the test. Don't test me about anything else, but test me here, he says. Now, don't misunderstand me. Christians, Christians do not observe the tithe in the same way or for the same reasons as God's people in the Old Testament. We are, we are a new people. We are a new, as we read in 1 Peter, we are a new people bought and paid for by Jesus' blood. And yet, in experiencing that profound generosity from the Lord should produce a profound generosity for us on the outside. Hypocrisy is a terrible thing, isn't it? Hypocrisy is a terrible thing, and we're all hypocrites. That's the bad news. Hypocrisy is a terrible and deadly thing, a terrifying thing, and yet we're all hypocrites. But here's the good news, church. Oh, there was one man who wasn't a hypocrite. There was one good man. There was, there was only one man in history who was not a hypocrite. There was one who preached self-sacrifice and then led himself to the cross for hypocrites. There was one man who, who required complete obedience and then fulfilled the law and the prophets for hypocrites. There was one who demanded love and forgiveness from his people and then pleaded to God for the forgiveness of those hypocrites who nailed him to the cross. He is the one, he, he is the God of the hypocrite. He's the only God of the hypocrite. He's the only God who can transform the hypocrite into being generous and honest. 
and consistent. The God who lived the perfect life of obedience, the God, who, the God who paid the debt that he did not owe, the God who defeated death for every hypocrite. The only hope for the hypocrite is found in Christ. The cross is the only hope for the hypocrite. In his book, many of you read, I know, The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne says, No man for any considerable, considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitudes without finally getting bewildered as to which one may be true. It's disorienting to be a hypocrite. Let's, let's confess our hypocrisy together as a church. Let's confess our hypocrisy together and let's trust in Christ this morning with our lives, with our soul, with our stuff, with our money, with our security. Trust in Christ this morning.